Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. In this episode, I'm going to give you a brief overview of the last six weeks of content. We're going to drill down and focus on the key parts and the key ideas that we covered in the 18 hours of content so far. Please make sure you're checking the handouts and the, the podcast that I put out for you to review the synopsis of each lesson. I'm going to call this section Theories of Mostly Dead Men. All right, so the device I'm using really to make the point and give you that overview is this little graphic on my screen. It is the theories of mostly dead men, which is in all honesty what we've been talking about. So if you recall, this all started with a discussion about Socrates and his famous line about sort of the way he perceived life. But remember what I said to start with. At the beginning, ethics is nothing more than a transactional relationship. If you are on an island all by yourself, your ethics wouldn't matter. You could be neither ethical nor unethical. In fact, unless there was even a single person more on that island, it would have no consequence however you acted, right? So what we know and what we understand is ethics is all about our actions, the way we treat people, the way we perceive people, and the way we judge what we ought to do when the solution is not obviously clear. The purpose of our course and the purpose of our content was all about developing, defending, and recommending concepts of good and bad, and coming up with strategies to deal with what we ought to do. So let's look at uh, you know, that first thinker. And that first thinker goes all the way back. We go to uh, Socrates, and Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, the kernel in the nutshell that I was trying to make when I shared that quote, that quote was, he said, it was important that we challenge our assumptions. We look at the things we believe we know, the knowledge we believe we have, and question it. We have to be willing to ask the hard questions to get to the truth. And a lot of time, what we understand to be the truth is really more informed by our own opinions, our own biases, our own frames of reference. So I want you to think about what he was asking us to do. He was asking us to question every assumption we make that allows us to believe the things we believe. And hopefully in doing so, we get to examining our lives in the most honest and reflective way possible. So as part of that discussion, I was trying to say, you have to realize that law enforcement is all about dealing with people. And dealing with people means you've got to understand where they're coming from, what drives their behavior, what motivates them to act the way that they do. Well, Abraham Maslow, a famous uh, psychologist, gives us a clue about this. So we talked about his hierarchy of needs. And in his hierarchy of needs, what he said was long before we can get all philosophical and we can figure out how to be the best versions of ourselves that is possible, we have to satisfy those basic needs in our life, those essentials, if you will. So Maslow said that needs were a lot like instincts, and those instincts drove our behavior. So if you are hungry, you have no food, you have no clothing, you have no shelter, it becomes very difficult to be your best version of yourself. 
Once you've achieved that, you can move on to safety and security, love and self-esteem and so on. But if we are dealing with people and we understand that they are not at that stage, they are still primarily concerned with their most basic needs, well, then we have to understand that their motivation is going to move accordingly. All of these things help us understand the people we will deal with. And I use that example to bring it around to law enforcement, right? So we listened to a TED talk uh, by Charles Ramsey, and he's a chief with 47 years of policing experience. And he made a couple of really good points in his talk. One was he said, we need to acknowledge the history of law enforcement, remembering that we haven't always been on the right side of history. And because we haven't been on the right side of history, there is an ongoing perception about the character in which we conduct ourselves. So he didn't like the expression, the blue line. He said he preferred a blue thread, something that ran through society. The point he was really driving at was public trust is a key component of effective policing. Without public trust, the police lose legitimacy. And without legitimacy, it is very hard to maintain social order or to have people cooperate with you. Both are essentials to policing. So after we did week one, we talked a little bit about laws and morality. And we talked about how to view that distinction, if you will, between laws and morality. In that section, I said, while morals are the broad sort of uh, agreements and principles that guide our society, they are the things that we agree to by consensus, even though they're not sort of formally codified. What we do and what we have is social pressure to conform. So I moved that forward and I said, well, okay, if you can understand what morals are, then let's look at what values are. And that's your personal prioritization, your personal prioritization of social morals. Moving from that point, now we can better understand what laws are, right? So laws are much narrower than either morals or values. While morals and laws are sort of connected, they're not one and the same, right? It's not necessarily justice systemized. Laws are narrow in focus. They are meant to set a manageable, enforceable standard that allows people to know what they ought to do, what they should do, or what they can do rather, actually more accurately, what they can do in society and what they can't do, right? Because when you violate the law, there's a sanction for that. Now, some people truly believe that those things are constrained and informed by our morality. Equally importantly, they think that rights and liberties are things the law should safeguard. And while that seems like a normal idea in our modern day context, it actually hasn't always been the case. If you look at the thoughts of Jeremy Bentham, Jeremy Bentham would be what we would call today a legal positivist. He believed the law was socially constructed. And in being socially constructed, he was a firm believer that it did not come from some divine command. It did not come from anything else other than the proper legitimate construction of the law. Because he believed in that, I think he famously said, rights and liberties that put necessary constraints on the law was nothing more than nonsense on stilts. So that's Jeremy Bentham. And Jeremy Bentham focused on the legality of what we enforce. He accepted the, judge ma the judges make rules where the law is not perfectly clear. And in his tradition, understanding the legal function and the bureaucratic and technical function of the law was increasingly important. When I think about the law, I think one of the best ways to think about it is that image of justice that we have everywhere. 
So this is Themis. Themis is the Roman goddess of justice. And she has often been portrayed as carrying, carrying the scales and holding the sword, usually depicted with a blindfold. So those key elements tell us a lot about what we believe to be the important elements of a justice system, right? The scales are meant to represent the balance of the needs of society with the needs of the individual. It is also said that, you know, that's how you weigh out the arguments for and against something. On the other hand, the sword is meant to represent power and vigilance and authority. And the sword is double-edged, right? It can be wielded both ways. It can go for against any party in an altercation or in a situation. So that sword symbolizes both law and authority, but also punishment. And finally, the blindfold. The blindfold is meant to represent impartiality, that the law doesn't take a side, that nobody is really above the law and the facts are what determines sort of what is right and what is wrong. This is an especially important point when you come back to public trust. It's saying that in the conception of the law, the police, like every other citizen, are not above the law. They still fall within those confines and they still are an essential part of what we consider a justice system. So it's inevitable when you're talking about ethics and you're trying to figure out why it's an important subject, we use theoretical knowledge. We use past thinkers to inform the way we frame dilemmas that we come across. And there are many that will tell you, why do we need all this stuff? At the end of the day, ethics is all about opinions, right? It's, I think this is right, or I think that's wrong, and that's all that matters. You can't tell somebody they're wrong. Well, we generally call that subjectivism or relativism, right? And it's this view that ethics is primarily about people's opinions and that right and wrong are determined, if you will, by individuals. Of course, you realize very quickly that there's some major flaws in that thinking, right? In order for subjectivism to work, nobody can be wrong, right? Because really what the subjectivists, what my random dudes on the screen are saying is that something is right or wrong because they like that thing. In fact, most subjectivists are talking about themselves, right? They're not talking about other people. But in a real world context, our actions have in impacts, they have consequences, and that does matter. So if nothing is ever wrong, technically I could walk up to you and punch you in the face, and if I believe that to be right, then it's right. And very quickly you see the flaw in that thinking when it applies to other people. We've all been through a stage in life where at some point or another, we've had to adjust our viewpoint. Well, that just tells us that our personal opinion can be the only thing that matters. Now, the other group of people in my random dude section will tell you it's all about culture, you know, and we should never judge cultures from anywhere else in the world. Well, the term we use for that is cultural relativism. And cultural relativism is a different sort of form of subjectivism, really, right? It's saying that what is right and wrong is dependent solely on one's culture. But cultures don't separate nicely. What culture do I belong to? My origins, my ethnic origins my Canadian culture, my socioeconomic demographic, my occupation. And clearly we realize we can't judge standards by these arbitrary lines because society doesn't work that way. The biggest problem with cultural relativism is that if it says that no theory transcends an individual culture, then you realize it's actually self-defeating because in that belief, it's suggesting a universal principle. 
that the universal principle being every culture makes its own rules. Imagine a society in which you had to accept that. It sounds like a really good argument at first pass, but if you think about it for a moment, people might use it to pretend like they're being inclusive, but really it's a fancy way of getting out of a really thorny ethical discussion. It lacks the merit to be a tight theory that can explain multiple things. More importantly, it is not the only option we have. We could go to a number of other theories that we've talked about to better explain how society works. So moving on from there, we sort of took a look at the functions of sort of people within a society like that. And we looked really more specifically at subcultures. And Zimbardo offered us a, an interesting perspective in his talk on the psychology of evil. So Phil Zimbardo said, you know, this stuff is important. So he would say to the random dudes, of course, this stuff is important because that line between good and evil, it's not impermeable. It is not sort of a fixed point and good people stay good and bad people stay bad. The truth of the, of the, the, truth of the matter is that very often good people make bad decisions. And it's circumstances that can lead to that. So we talked about some of those processes that can lead an otherwise good person to make bad decisions, right? Blind obedience to authority, uncritical conformity to group norms. We could dehumanize somebody by othering them, you know, make them less worthy. And throughout history, we have done that maybe too often. So he's focusing in on the psychology of evil, but really the takeaway for our purposes is understanding that choices can be made with agency, but also choices sometimes occur because of the situations we find ourselves in and the pressures we feel to conform. Zimbardo contributed greatly to that subject, both through his analysis of Abu Ghraib, as well as the Stanford prison experiment from the 70s that we talked about in class. And I think Henry Tajfeld would probably agree. So we talked about social identity theory and he gave us a great perspective on it, right? So social identity theory that uh, was introduced by Tajfeld talked about how we really other people by attaching ourselves to groups, right? And what we do there is we tend to overemphasize the similarity between us and other members of our group. And we tend to exaggerate the differences between our group and other groups. What all of that does is it gives us a sense of belonging but it also brings out some negativity because we focus on the negative traits of other groups and that leads us down a rabbit hole of problems. So Henry Tajfeld talking about social identity theory gave us an understanding of how group mentality can influence our actions. After that, we talked a little bit about Howard Becker and Howard Becker introduced labeling theory to us. And as part of labeling theory, I think the big takeaway there was we need to remember at every point that words matter, right? And they matter greatly. So while it was not a, uh, an explanation for primary deviance, it did give us a preview of what might happen after we label somebody, right? And labeling theory basically says that deviance or a deviant label more often than not produces more deviance. People tend to act in accordance to the label we've assigned them, right? And that can be problematic if we're trying to find better approaches to doing things. So as much as all of that was, was key and important, I want to bring it back to policing because that's at the end of the day what we're talking about. And this year is, you know, the father of policing, modern day policing, Sir Robert Peel. 
and one I, I talked about some of the more contentious parts of his uh, his thinking and his actions, he did say this that I think is worth repeating and worth remembering. The degree of cooperation we can expect from the public is directly correlated to the level of trust they feel in the police. Once again, he's reminding us of what that much more modern thinker, uh, Charles Ramsey said, trust is an integral part of policing and that's reciprocity. That's, that's dependent on reciprocity. We have to do things to earn loyalty and trust. Trust is not given freely, trust is earned. And to take it for granted would be a fool's errand. As I explore and keep going, you know, we look at Kohlberg and Kohlberg then, as we explored what Kohlberg had to say about this, he sort of brought, he started to bring this conversation around. So we understood how the culture we're in informs our broader perspective. We understood what policing was saying. And then he said, you have to look inwards, right? And Kohlberg presented us with the stages of moral development. And the stages of moral development tell us how we mature morally, how we reason through the situations we find ourselves in. And that's an important one to consider because while we'd like to believe that simply going through life and aging gives us all of the information knowledge we need, the truth of the matter is that there's only a small percentage of people that can actually move all the way from his pre-conventional level, right? Where we're very egotistic and self-driven. We want to avoid punishment, but basically we're just worried about ourselves to the other end of the spectrum in the post-conventional phase when he's talking about our understanding of abstract justice, our understanding of the social contract. I think only six people get to that top level, right? The vast majority of the people fall squarely in the middle. They're willing to listen to law enforcement, but not necessarily for all the right reasons. It's an instrumental sort of approach to development, and that can be extremely problematic. So, what moral development gives us is a sense of where we are and how we think. But we added to that discussion and we said that, you know, as part of that broader discussion, people do things to justify and explain where they are, right? Because we can't always accept that we're not morally mature. So we looked at Sykes and Matza and Sykes and Matza presented us with the techniques of neutralization. In a nutshell, they were saying that these were the justifications we use to explain our deviant behavior after we've already done it, right? And really what we're trying to do here is absolve ourselves of some guilt. We want to believe that what we did was justifiable. And so we come up with some things, right? We can deny responsibility. We can deny injury to the person we've committed this offense to. We can deny the victim. You know, we can make them a bad victim and therefore almost deserving, if you will, of the actions that we, you know, we made. All that we're trying to discuss here, whether we're condemning the condemner or we're appealing to a higher authority, is finding a way to get straight with bad decisions, right? And so the techniques of neutralization don't really just apply to deviant uh, sort of characters and actors. They apply to everybody because at some stage in our life, we have all tried to justify our actions after we've done something that we probably would have stopped and thought about if we had taken just one extra minute. So all of that was meant to bring us around 
And what we were trying to accomplish here is an understanding of the way we perceive knowledge, the way we look at knowledge, and the way we handle it, right? But this is not a new subject. We have talked about uh, many great thinkers already, but I want to go back in a ways for a little bit. And I, I think I'm going back a long ways when I'm sort of representing God on the screen. Uh, obviously, I'm using God here as the placeholder for any divinity, regardless of religious belief. Uh, and we're going to explain one of the oldest theories, right? So we talked about divine command theory. And divine command theory made moral morality dependent on God, right? However you perceive God to be. And obviously, there are different people through different religious traditions that believe very different things. Divine command theory is not speaking about the accuracy of any one religion. It is talking about morality being grounded in a divine creator, right? And so what you get out of that is this understanding that what is good and what is right is what is commanded by God. And this thinking permeated the world for a long period of time. That's not to say it's good or bad. It was a theory of understanding morality. Because you got to remember, in the ancient society, there was very little distinction between laws and morality. They were one and the same. Right. Most people understood the world as being ordered and created by God. Of course, this took a more sort of functional approach with the teachings of Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas is a Italian uh, Catholic monk, and he's one of the foremost thinkers of natural law. Now, Aquinas would argue that the God in the divine command is the Christian God. That would be his position and his argument. But more importantly, he made a broader conversation about divinity and reason. And the basic premise of natural law in a nutshell is that natural law is an extension of God's eternal law. And his eternal law is what sort of guides the whole world. Now, what he comes, where he comes to from this was he says God also gave people rational capacity. This ability to understand through their natural inclinations what they should do. And for the most part, what he said they should do is to do good and avoid evil. Of course, he was very, very practical in the sense that he realized that because that took human reason, it could be corrupted. So he said, living in accordance to the commands of God, using the rational capacity given by God would bring you ultimately to living much more rightly and justly. Of course, not everybody accepted this viewpoint, right? Uh, not everybody accepted that we needed a divine intervention to understand what was right and wrong. In fact, Aristotle would argue in virtue-based ethics that it was character that was the most important piece. And character would determine what is good and what is bad, right? Because character defined the person. So in virtue ethics, really, we also get to a state of human flourishing, what he called eudaimonia, right? This, this ultimate state of perfection, if you will. And he said the way we get there is through thinking virtuously and acting virtuously, but more importantly, more importantly, being motivated to be virtuous, right? So Aristotle would argue that you can't be virtuous just by doing it to look good or because you think it's the right thing in any given situation. In fact, Aristotle would say that's not virtuous at all, right? He says to be virtuous, you must actually make it part of your identity. It has to be a stable 
positive habit that you will do at every point. Now, he made the point that this obviously doesn't come easy. And we, use, we need to use practical wisdom or what he called phronesis. And phronesis is the creative capacity to pick the virtuous option in any given situation without necessarily needing a rule or formula to follow. Right? So he would make the argument that virtue was the most important good and all other things followed from there. So be virtuous and avoid vices, right? the other opposite. Of course, he was not the only thinker who thought like this. Uh, Confucius, who lived in uh, China, slightly before the time of Aristotle actually, shared that view. Now he agreed that being virtuous was important. He also agreed that you had to act virtuously and be motivated uh, to be virtuous. However, he put a slightly different focus on, on his version of uh, the philosophy. He basically argued that virtue rests with the family because your family and that relational nature of human beings is where we learn virtue. And really, from his perspective, all of society is an extension of your family. Right? So family being your primary means of socialization will teach you your social roles. And when you enact those social roles and you play your part in society, your public life, your social life, and even your political life would become extensions of your natural family life. Now, both Aristotle and Confucius were very clear. You cannot teach virtue in the traditional sense, right? You can't sit down and tell somebody, this is how you're virtuous. That doesn't work. You have to want to be virtuous. And I love that old Buddhist proverb that goes, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. That's really what they're talking about. You have to be ready and willing. And that's when you'll find a mentor. And for both of them, virtue was learned through mirroring or mimicking virtuous people and by practicing it over and over and over until your default, per, you know, your default position in life was doing the thing that was right just because it was right. Now, as much as that sounds like a fairly coherent theory, it obviously creates some problems, right? Because how do we determine who's virtuous and who I learned from and so on? And there are other thinkers that had different views on it. So you get two guys who are the primary drivers, although there have been many other thinkers in the consequentialist sort of theory um, bracket. Two, two men in particular talked about a the most enduring part of consequentialism, which is utilitarianism. And utilitarianism is brought to us by Jeremy Bentham. Recall that we was, he was the person we spoke about earlier who had a view on legal uh, sort of construction of laws, right? So Jeremy Bentham would argue that the greatest good that anyone could aim for was happiness. And the best thing to do to figure out what was right or wrong was to evaluate the outcome of their actions. So the outcome would determine if something was good or bad. Now, John Stuart Mills comes along a little later um, and he agrees in many ways with Jeremy Bentham, except how Jeremy Bentham calculated happiness, right? So they call that net difference between maximizing happiness and reducing pain or suffering. They call that utility. And they said that the goal was to maximize utility. 
because in maximizing utility, we came up with the best option, right? But this is a theory I think that's often misunderstood. As I said before, uh, I think the problem is too often we think about this as the greatest good for the greatest number and we stop there. Or we, even worse, think the ends justify the means is what they were arguing. But really that's missing a key part of their theory and their theory was really based on impartiality. So it was using reason and using reasonable, you know, our capacity for rational thinking to find the outcome that had maximal good for everyone involved, right? So they saw people as inherently equal and because they were equal, you could not ignore any one person's sort of conditions in your evaluation. Now, there are two ways you can do this, broadly speaking. One is what they called act utilitarianism. That's where you evaluate the options at any given situation and figure out what is the best, what's going to produce the best outcome. And what act utilitarianism is trying to do is trying to get you to think on the, on the moment, on the spot, about what you should do and how that will play out. And if an action produces greater happiness for the greater number of people, right, everyone involved, then that's what you should do. On the other hand, you might use what they call rule utilitarianism to determine whether or not your actions were right and the outcome would be beneficial. And what that does is it looks at what would happen if you applied that rule. So let's say, for example, uh, I think the example I've used previously many times is um, if a police officer was to lie about a crime that was committed, right? And um, use that lie to incarcerate somebody who he knew was bad, but lacked the evidence to prove it in this particular scenario. Well, rule utilitarianism would say, well, what would happen if police officers lied all the time, right? And then they'd ask you to consider the alternative. What would happen if police officers lied none of the time? And whichever option gave you the best overall result, so in our case, if the police officers lied all of the time, we would lose faith in our justice system. And that would be extremely problematic. So the rule would tell us to do the thing that produces the greatest effect for society overall. So that was the first two of the major theories that we looked at was virtue-based ethics and utilitarianism, right? Uh, of course, we followed that with, uh, we, we followed those um, after we talked about uh, divine command and natural law. The next thinker in our sort of lineup is Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant had a different perspective. So he disagreed that you needed divinity to provide morality. He also disagreed that you need to only look at outcomes. He believed that the right way to act was with principle based on reason, right? And he, he believed that was a duty, right? It was a duty that was formed when we give ourselves principle from our own practical reasoning. Now he distinguished uh, between rules. So it's not the same. He didn't mean one and the same thing when he said principles. To him, rules were something that was given by an external authority, something you had to follow for fear of punishment or uh, in, with anticipation of reward. 
principles, on the other hand, he believed came out of practical reason. And because he valued reason so much, he believed strongly that a virtuous way of being was only one where we were motivated by acting according to those principles. Now, those principles to him were a means uh, and an end in itself, right? They weren't for any instrumental reason. They gave us the things that he would call categorical imperatives, which said simply was the things we must follow in every category of situation we ever encounter. They have to be applicable to all people. They can never use people as a mere means, uh, sorry, an end, you know, in a, in a different way. You can't use people. You have to be fair and principled in your approach. It wasn't that he didn't understand or he didn't agree that inclinations were important. And he thought inclinations were our natural way of being, our natural disposition. It was that humanistic sort of drive towards basic urges. And much like Aristotle, he thought you had to suppress your natural inclinations and act with reason, right? Because what he thought was emotions were a way of convoluting our thinking. So it's not that he didn't think they had a place, he just didn't think they were particularly impressive, right? And he believed that if you acted principally in every circumstance, you would get a much better circumstance for everybody involved. We call that line of thinking deontology, right? So it's a duty-based ethics. And Immanuel Kant was not the only thinker that provided us with a glimpse of something based in duty. You have obviously uh, some extremely old philosophies, right? Moses and the Ten Commandments, Mosaic law was also rule-based ethic, uh, you know, rules-based ethics. And they all fit under the umbrella of deontology. But when we talk about uh, sort of Immanuel Kant, what we're looking at primarily is this emphasis on acting with principle and reason to guide our decision-making. So if you can consider all of those theories and all of them are basically saying uh, the same thing in different ways, they're saying that there is something that is good, right? And just, but the way in which they are evaluating what is good and how we ought to act is a little different. They give us different frames of reference to judge the situation we find ourselves in. Now, if you look at social contract theory, social contract theory is a really nice way to bring it all around, right? And the primary thinkers we're looking at when we talk about social contract theory is Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes was, you know, the, the one that first sort of talked about social contract theory. More formally, it's called con uh, contractualism. But for our purposes, we'll just call it social contract theory. What he was arguing was that people in a normal uh, sort of environment before there was society that organized itself with agreements between rational people. He believed we all lived in a state of nature. And this term state of nature comes up in several uh, great thinkers sort of philosophy, right? And we're going to talk about a couple of them really briefly as well. But here's the important distinction. For Jeremy, uh, sorry, for, for Thomas Hobbes, the state of nature was a nasty, solitary, poor and brutish place. He thought we were naturally uh, not very pleasant, right? In fact, he would argue that in a state of nature, we would be in a perpetual state of constant war. It would be war of, of all against all, right? Because we are so naturally self-interested, 
we would never have any reason to work with other people. But then he makes a slight change that is particularly important for our purposes here. He says, other than being self-interested, we are also rational. And because we're rational, we realize that we can benefit ourselves. We can further our self-interest if we work with other people. So from his perception, it's not just about helping others. It's really about finding the maximal way to further our own self-interest. And for that reason, he says, we need a structured society in which people agree to a set of rules that govern their interaction. Now, for him, he believed that that central authority that would govern that relationship was a monarch, right? And he was very traditional in his thinking. And he believed, while he didn't believe that the kings of his time were divinely appointed by God, he did believe you needed a strong, what he would call sovereign, uh, what we would call government, a strong sovereign to rule over the people. And he did believe that this sovereign should have absolute authority, right? Because that way they could hold people accountable if they violated the social contract. The idea is actually not as far-fetched as you think, right? Because we have another thinker that comes along a little later, and he's John Locke. And John Locke is greatly influential, right? He's a major influence in the American Constitution and the development of the United States. But John Locke has the same view that prior to an organized society, we'd live in a state of nature. He uses the same hypothetical place that humans would be before society was organized. The only difference is, he says it's a place of complete liberty. And because everybody is free, they would live by their self-interests, but it would be relatively peaceful. Now, he did say the problem with this pre-organized society in this state of nature, there would be nobody who would, who would be the arbiter of any conflicts that existed, right? And to him, the major conflicts would be any challenge or threat to life, liberty, and property. Property was a big one for John Locke, right? So John Locke says that society is ordered and he, he's a, a thinker that believes in God very strongly. And so he says, uh, everybody follows a natural law and that natural law is given by God. And that moral law is one we should follow. And in the state of nature, because we have complete liberty to pursue our own self-interest, we could, should rightfully protect our life, liberty and property and nobody should infringe upon it. However, if somebody did, we'd have no way to deal with it. So his suggestion is we need to move to a social contract. We need to come to a society where everybody agrees. And the way he envisioned this was he was saying, everybody in the state of nature has executive power to deal with the problems that they face. Well, he suggests we give up that executive power to the executive power of sort of the majority. And so we'd all submit to the will of the majority. Now, from John Locke, we get our first conceptions of this idea of government, right? Not, not a monarch, but a government, a representative government, if you will. But he makes a very big distinction from Thomas Hobbes, who believed in the absolute uh, power and authority of a monarch. For John Locke, we loan the power to our elected government. And in so doing, we can revoke that consent if they don't act properly. That's really the basis of our modern day election theory, right? So we give up a certain amount of power and then our elected officials make laws and they enact policies 
But if we disagree with it at any point, we go back to the ballot box and we can replace them. So we give up to the majority our will on loan and in exchange, we have a contract that works during that period, right? Now for John Locke, we would never live in an environment where we go, that is not my president or that is not my prime minister, right? Because he says you submit to the will of the majority and you live accordingly. And if you disagree with it, then you go back to the ballot box, right? Essentially is what he is saying. I'm kind of modernizing it. Our third key thinker on this subject though is uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau believes also, and he also uses the hypothetical state of nature, but he says, the state of nature is a very peaceful place. It's a solitary place. And the way he conceptualizes this is that this is your pre-organized society time period in which people live far apart. Nature could do everything to provide the needs of the people. Now, for Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the biggest ill, the biggest social ill is private property, right? And he says, the minute we develop private property, which comes out of population growth and advanced inventions. And, you know, we start accumulating wealth and we start accumulating property. But what that does is it allows us to have more leisure time. And our leisure time allows us to start comparing ourselves with everybody around us. And that makes us envious and greedy. And it, it brings in all of those social ills that corrupt the state of nature, right? And he says, so from that, from this ill of private property, what you get is a group of property owners that then enact a law that is meant to represent everybody, but really protects private landowners only. So he says, we need to enter into a social contract and that social contract should be based on principles that everybody, all equal men, and I'm saying men, not to gender it for any other reason than that was the language in the convention of their time, that all equal men could agree to. So what all three of them have in common, though, is that they understand the social contract is not a physical contract. It's an implicit contract. And our participation in society binds us to a set of rules and those set of rules we live by. Right. So if we're doing what we're supposed to do and we're we're exchanging within that society by following the rules, we're OK. But if we violate the rules, there has to be someone external that can oversee that contract. you've got through social contract theory um, with the three primary thing because you have a pretty good understanding right so implicit contract uh, agreed to by all in our modern day context that would be uh, something that would be enforced by the police right you so think about this we have in Canada a set of laws and set of rules right the Canadian criminal code but we also have limits on that uh, set of laws we have the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and what that does is it puts necessary constraints. So who enforces the social contract? That would be the police. They act as agents of the state. And combined with our justice system and our penal system, you get a whole picture of how that social contract is maintained. That's the essence. And we all agree to it. Now, it's in some ways, it's a little easier to picture with new immigrants to Canada. Right. Because you can picture the new immigrant standing here doing a citizenship test, swearing an oath of allegiance to Canada and taking an oath that says they accept the rules of the country. It is a little bit more complicated when you look at people who are born here, 
right? So when we're born here, we're born into a system and we never actually take an oath. We never make an agreement to abide by the laws of Canada. But what we do is we participate in society. And once we participate in society, that's where you get the implied consent. You choose to live here. You could freely move anywhere else, but you choose not to. Because you choose to live here and you draw benefits from society, you accept your role in the social contract and then you act in accordance to it. So if you violate a law, it doesn't matter that you never agreed to the Canadian Criminal Code. Being a Canadian citizen or being a immigrant that has been granted citizenship or has rights as a landed immigrant or in any other legal category, in being here, we accept the rules of our society. Now, if I fast forward 300 years, uh, social contract got a little bit of a facelift, right? And a much more modern thinker than the ones we've talked about um, is John Rawls. John Rawls has an interesting conception of the state of nature. So he also uses the hypothetical state of nature. Granted, his version of it is far more abstract. But what John Rawls does is he imbues and combines, uh, well, he doesn't imbue and combine. He combines Thomas Hobbes's theory and he imbues it with uh, Immanuel Kant's uh, focus on principle and reason. And using the two, he comes up with a conception of justice as fairness. Now, the way he explains this, and I think it's a great exercise in sort of understanding our roles in how to be objective. He presents us with something he calls the original position. He asks people to go on a thought experiment. And on his thought experiment, he says, imagine a group of people, constituents, if you will, who sit around and plan to build a society from scratch. And if we were to build our society from scratch and ask ourselves, what would we want it to look like? How would it be fair? He said, we might come up with a better society, but we are naturally inclined to look at our own present station in life and figure out what rule we should create that best supports and best advantages us. So a critical component of his thought experiment was that everybody in this original position would do so from behind a veil of ignorance. And the veil of ignorance is basically saying this, we would have no idea in the formation of our society what place we would have in that society. And he truly believed that because people wouldn't know whether they would be part of the most advantaged or the least advantaged in society, that they would pick a strategy he called the maximum strategy. Right. And the maximum strategy is the one that maximizes the benefit for the most disadvantaged group within society. So if you think about that, what they're saying to you is this. If you had to plan something and you didn't know where you would fit once it was planned, you should pick the option that even if you ended up in the worst possible scenario, it would be better than all the other alternatives. We always like to use the pizza example, right? Imagine somebody asks you to slice a pizza in advance. You know you're going to share, you're going to get a share, but you don't know what share you're going to get. So if you cut large pieces and small pieces and you end up picking last, you might get that small piece. So what he's doing is essentially that. He's saying, let's think about society. Let's think about all the goods in society. And let's think about how we would share that. Now, those are the principles of distributive justice, but that's outside the scope of this course. 
So John Rawls, his, the one thing that makes his theory different than all the ones we looked at is he's not saying how you ought to live, how you should run your own personal affairs. What he's talking about is social institutions. So while his original position and his veil of ignorance is hard to imagine practically, you think, well, what does that have to do with me? I'm never going to reorganize society and I can never forget where I am in that society. What he's saying was, imagine us using that sort of thinking when creating a new policy, when running a social institution, much like policing. How would we pick the strategy that benefits even the most disadvantaged people? And in that, John Rawls makes a tremendous contribution to the subject of ethics because he's asking us to think about social institutions and their functioning. What you have coming out of all of this really is a summary of all of the foundational content that a key that an ethics course should give you. It's saying we accept that ethics is a transactional relationship. It is all about how we judge our actions and the actions of other people. It is about how we develop, defend, and recommend concepts of right and wrong so that we can arrive at what we ought to do when we're faced with a range of situations that are outside of our control. I want you to think about all of that because as we go through all of that, it is extremely relevant to law enforcement because law enforcement is a people-oriented career. It's one where we live in service of other people, where we accept that part of the ethical rule is that law enforcement and those entrusted with power and authority use rightful discretion, make ethical judgments, because people with power and authority, especially public figures, are always held to a higher standard than those they serve. While the ethics course doesn't give you the answer to every problem, it never sought out to in the first place. It sought out to give you ways to think about situations, different perspectives and lenses to look through it. This wraps up my overview of our first six weeks, and I've tried to bring it down to a manageable level. This would be the foundations of ethics, and we will build on in the weeks to come. I hope you found it useful and helpful.